You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are still in Chapter 28 of Samuel, <laughs> somehow. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff in this. And because, you know, I, we've been having to do a lot of background stuff mm-hmm. because, as we've said multiple times, this isn't a how-to manual. We aren't familiar with the techniques and the things that went on, like the writer expected his audience to be. Right, right. So, um. And I, I think this is a story a lot of people are very, very curious about, but they've never had real information given to them, or they very seldom had right. very real information given to them. And this week, we're actually jumping into that last little part that you didn't even realize was there, where the the woman is feeding Saul, mm-hmm. and why is that important? So I know when I went through it and was reading it, I was like, you've got to be kidding me nobody's talking about this. I yeah. didn't know it. it. I mean, it, it seems like an important piece of information. It, I mean, the way it, it's all coming together. I mean, I don't know the exact importance, but it seems like there's something there that, that should be explored. Well, you know, you kind of work from the assumption that if it's been included in the Bible, there's a reason for it. Right. I, right. That's kind of where I start because the point of having a Bible that's written down is so that we can retain this important information. Uh, I was listening on... Um, the Lord of the Spirits podcast, um, the, one of the, the hosts on there was saying that the reason why you write things down is because you're scared it's going to get lost. Right. So now it's important and you have to have it written. And, you know, the Bible was like written... Indiana in... Jones. <laughs> write it down so I don't have to remember. <laughs> that's, yeah, pretty much. And it, the thing is, we also have this book that's very concise in a lot of ways because, I mean, if every little thing was written down, we could have something that resembled the Encyclopedia Britannica and, you know, we couldn't transport it easily. And here we've got all this great information packed in this book that can be put in a backpack or right, a pocket, right. you know, it's crazy how masterfully it's designed. And I don't think a lot of times we appreciate the the level of intention behind the design right down to the fact that it is transportable and we can, we can copy and we can share and still... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not have you know too many gaps. And I'm not saying that we don't have like important theological information in the Bible that we need to kind of fill in. Most of the stuff we're filling in is cultural. Sure. It's historical. Sure. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. And, and just because I'm saying this is the background, again, it's not scripture. So, you know, weigh it with some, some wisdom. Don't just, yeah. oh, well, Emily said this. I mean, I don't think... There's too much danger of that, but at the same time, well, yeah, we definitely don't want that to happen. No, no, no. Uh, maybe you know, in my younger days, uh, but I, I'm a little mature, a little bit more mature, more mature. Not that you can tell by the way I'm speaking. Yeah. So anyway, so we're still in chapter 28, and the woman has just called Samuel uh, up from the ground, and we were talking about why this would shock her and why she's surprised because she's definitely surprised at what's going on here. And you know, like I said last week, she hadn't performed any of the rituals. She hadn't gone through all of the steps, at least as far as we're told. And Samuel is immediately recognizable, not something she would have anticipated mm-hmm. because if this is following the, the customs and the ceremony of the pit, it would require that the spirits eat from the pit and obviously, Samuel's not going to drink blood from a pit. He's not going to accept some kind of pagan sacrifice to himself, right. even though he is identified as one of the Elohim coming up, because Elohim, again, location, not status. Right. Yeah. And so, we covered that, I think, pretty mm-hmm. in depth last week. So if yeah. you missed that, I encourage you to check that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is what the Hebrew says. And, you know, that was not an accident. And the fact that you know, she recognized him and he recognized her. This would have been a testimony to the fact that this is, this is something outside of her range and scope of experience. Mm-hmm. So she describes him to Saul as an old man. 
And, you know, Samuel was born an old man. And that's, that's the funny part with Samuel. It's like, of course it's an old man. You, you would have expected it to be an old man if this... Not but, literally, but attitude-wise is what you're saying. Yes, this yes. Is. Well, yeah, because we are dealing with a supernatural book. But <laughs> as far as attitude, it seems like Samuel was born a grumpy old man. He's wrapped in a robe. Now, Samuel's clothing has almost been a character in its own right within this story. It's talked about a lot. I think his clothing is actually talked about more than any other person in the Bible. Now, I haven't verified that, but that's my gut feeling. Because Okay. I might have to, might have to <laughs> right? look that up. I'm trying to think of other people whose clothing's been mentioned, but go ahead. You got Adam and Eve, but I mean, it's a real quick little... Well, you, you got, got Joseph. You got Joseph. Um, and that's one robe. Jesus. Well, and then Pharaoh gives him new clothes. Yeah. So Jesus, yeah, you, and that's the thing. They're, the important characters, when you're talking about their clothing, it, it's status. It's telling mm -hmm. you where they are in life. Because in that day and age, you didn't go to Walmart and buy, you know, $1.68 tanks off the, the table and, you know, some new shoes for 20 bucks. You, right. you, you, this was not something you did. They had to be made, and they had to be made by someone you were going to pay a lot of money to or someone who cared about you. And that, mm -hmm. it, that's the thing when you realize that, that clothing someone was an intimate act. It, it was not something that was just, oh, I've got, I, I need a new t-shirt. I mean, right. that, that was not the attitude. There, there was love. There was thought put into actually putting clothing on someone's body. Right. And that, I, I think that makes a little different because when we start out and we look at you know, the first time his clothes are mentioned, well, that's when his mother is taking him the new tunic, the new mm -hmm. robe mm -hmm. every year up uh, to um, Shiloh. Saul, when he tears Samuel's robe, whenever Samuel's trying to walk away from him, when Samuel realized Saul hadn't killed the king of, of the um, Amalekites. Mm -hmm. And then now it's an identifier. And this is how Saul knows immediately, because in Saul's mind, Samuel's ro robe is an important piece of clothing because of what it represented to Saul's reign. Right. And then, of course, we did have uh, Samuel's robe metaphorically referred to whenever David cut the corner from right. Saul's robe. Which, which is a commentary on his spirituality. Exactly. E exactly. So th it, there's a reason this is the identifier. Say spirituality. <laughs> you know, his, his, his relationship to Yahweh, I guess, is probably the better way to say it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And which becomes your spirituality, but yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, sounded a little <laughs> weird, just the way it came out, I don't know. Well, well, you know, I think everybody knew what you meant, so... But 15c, this is the last part of that verse that we started last week, and Sa Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground, and he paid homage. Now, Saul had always bowed before Samuel. He had always shown Samuel respect when Samuel was before him. Right. And it was just the fact that anytime Samuel was gone, Saul seemed to forget everything he promised to do when Samuel was talking to him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the thing about faith is if you aren't honoring the person that is, in, is guiding you in your faith when they're not around, do you really have faith in what they're teaching you? Or is it just the restraining force that's keeping you in line? Sure. And I think we've seen that it's, it's Samuel's restraining presence that, that makes Saul toe the line and the minute Samuel is gone from his life this is when Sam when Saul starts throwing spears at David and starts killing priests at Nove and starts doing all the things he shouldn't and as long as Samuel was there he was still trying somewhat he, he was still at least making some effort yeah you know, he was still messing it up but he was putting in the time so to try something but verse 18 it's the first part of it says then Samuel said to Saul why have, you brought, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So the, the Bible plainly says, this is Samuel speaking. Mm -hmm. there, there's no ambiguity there. And it sounds like Samuel. He's grumpy. He's irritable. I mean, he, he's very straight to the point. He, you've disturbed me. Why have you done this? And mm -hmm. you can hear why he's, ir he's irritated right here. And... So Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me. You know, look, I've got a great reason. Just hear me out. The Philistines are warring against me, not Israel, mm -hmm. not God, but me. I, I need your help. And God isn't really talking right now. So, you know, I kind of bend some few, a few rules to get. Yeah, well, and it, it's kind of interesting. It says, uh, God has turned away from me. So what I find interesting, and I, I just want to, backtrack a little mm -hmm. bit because i was just thinking about last week we were talking about him using uh using 
God's name mm-hmm. to swear an oath to this witch. Right. And, you know, in the, you know, the Ten Commandments, we hear, do not take the Lord's name in vain. I mm-hmm. mean, we're, we're brought up from the time we're little that we, you know, we're watching, we don't say, oh my God, we don't yeah. say, you know, like, and that's the extent of what we're taught most of the time. But mm-hmm. this is actually a really good example of using God to get something you yes. want. Uh, using his name, misrepresenting what he should mm-hmm. be after, and basically using Yahweh's name to to swear an oath and make a make a a, a treaty mm-hmm. with someone who is definitely not on Yahweh's side with the opposing kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and no, I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. This is a direct violation of that commandment, and it, it is it is more than just don't say, Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember that getting in trouble for that because you're, you're observing commandment instead of saying, you know, when I bear God's name, I need to be representing God well. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I, I think if we, you know, maybe interpreted and lived it like that, there'd be a little less criticism about uh, hypocrites in the church, but what do I know? So anyway, so Saul, no, Saul has, he's making excuses like he always does. You know, there, there's a problem here and I need some help. So it's okay for me to do it this way because it's the only option I have left. So he finishes out and he says that God's not talking to him either by the prophets or, or dreams. And we talked about that in the episode uh, time before last. And you know, dreams were how God communicated with foreign kings, not the king of Israel. No, there's no prophets talking to him um, because Samuel's been dead. And we're assuming that after Samuel died, probably the other prophets in the land that studied at Samuel's school of prophecy that he had established at Ramah, they probably followed Samuel's example. You know, if God's not going to talk to Saul through Samuel, then they didn't have a right to step into that gap and try to, to help Saul out. So anyway, he says, therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And it's like all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to follow directions well this time. But I mean, this is very much that narcissistic kind of personality of Saul. I need help. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to to make sure that you will help me. I'm going to forget about you as soon as I get what I want. But right now, I'm going to make you feel sorry for me so that you will help me. Um, But notice what Saul leaves out, because if you go back to verse six, he cites that the Urim is also not working for him, but yeah, he doesn't include it when he's talking to Samuel. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, I did, I was looking at that. I was like, I thought I read that, but I guess it was earlier on in the, right. in the passage. Well, and the reason why it's not there was because he killed all the priests at Noves and, and Avathar took it with him to go to be with David. David had consulted with it outside of Keilah. Right. So yep. do you want to be the guy who tells Samuel, oh, and by the way, I killed all the priests. This is why God's not talking to me yeah, through I mean, this. Yeah, if you kill all the people who work for someone, <laughs> they might not want to talk to you anymore. Well, and, and remember, Samuel was a priest, and he grew up with the priest. And his, his childhood home was with the Ark of the Covenant. And so he would have known all these guys. They would have been his friends mm-hmm. and family. Yep. And... I don't think anybody would want to be the person to tell Samuel this bit of bad news. Right. Well, uh, I mean, he probably already knew it. I, he probably did, but I mean, it, it, it's the typical kid yeah. coming to mom and dad, let's just leave out this little piece of information so I don't have to tell you what I actually did or the whole story, and let's, let's just not draw attention to it, it, is pretty much what he's doing. So verse 16, and Samuel says, Who do you, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? I mean, that's not something you want to hear from right. anyone. God has become your enemy. And, you know, but he's basically asking, if, if God's not talking to you, what makes you think I want to talk to you? Right. <laughs> I mean, and because cause Samuel's also like, well, I'm, you don't, you know... <laughs> Yeah. I'm the one who's supposed to speak for God, and if he doesn't have anything to say to you, I don't either. Exactly. Exactly. And then to to include that little bit of information, oh, by the way, God's now your enemy. I mean, Saul really didn't want to hear what Samuel had to say anyway. He just didn't realize it. Right. So, verse 17, And the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. So. 
uh, this is the prophecy that, that Samuel had given to Saul way back when, I think chapter 15, with the Amalekites and King Agag when, when Saul tore Samuel's robe. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Samuel had said, I'm going to give it to a neighbor who is better than you. But the neighbor had not been identified. For the first time, we have Saul, uh, Samuel telling Saul, the person who's going to get the kingdom now is David. You know, before this, we knew it was David. Jonathan knew it was David. Saul even seemed to act like he knew it was David. But Samuel had never directly told Saul that this was who it was. So this is a big step. And one of the reasons, too, that it's argued this is a demon who was impersonating Samuel is because this prophecy here reveals no new information. And this was something that could have been known by anyone who was following the plot. Yeah. I don't, I don't buy that argument. I don't either. Because, I mean, I've, I've had enough encounters with people where they try to get me to, you know, I'm like, no, I've told you what I need to tell you. Mm-hmm. That's it. This is, you know, there's a, you know, doing, <laughs> doing tech support for people, you know. Like, you just repeat the same thing until they get it. <laughs> right. It's the same kind of thing. So. Well, and you see with Samuel, what I love about him is you see with him, I'm going to lay it out for you one more time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the, the way he presents it, it, it. It's so Samuel-esque. I mean, it's not something that you, you can deny that this isn't in the character of Samuel. But how can you say there's no new information here? Because then he goes on to give a prophecy yeah. with some very new and pertinent information. Exactly. And so that's where you have to look at the whole text and not just part of it. So verse 18, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done, done this thing to you this day. So, you know, Samuel reminds Saul, this is where you messed up. This is what, why it's happening. Uh, you didn't listen. so you didn't want to listen, so God stopped talking. God's not going to force himself to listen if you aren't going to to pay attention to mm-hmm. what he has to say. And so I think it's also interesting here, and I, I'm not sure the full implications, but notice it's singular. Uh, his wrath, you did not carry out his wrath against Amalek, not the Amalekites, not Agag, but Amalek himself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and Amalek, we're going to talk a lot about them in a, very soon, but it's very interesting to me that Samuel is making it personalized to a specific individual and not the, the people themselves. Okay. And so um, there, there, I think there's something to that. So we're going to discuss what that is in a future episode. But verse 19, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. So God's going to, you know, God's your enemy now. So his, these guys are going to get to win. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So God is going to use the Philistines to exact judgment on Saul and mm-hmm. his sons. Now, unfortunately, this also means that God's judgment against Saul is going to be against the nation of Israel itself. When you've got a wicked leader or even a neglectful leader, it's going to impact the people he's leading. Yeah. And I think God is saying, hey, you, you, we talked about this earlier uh, in a previous episode, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so right now, the enemy of Saul is the Philistines. The enemy of, of Saul is God. So mm-hmm. they're teaming mm-hmm. up. And, you know, everything that David had prophesied to Saul previously is now happening too, because Saul, uh, David had told Saul this is what's going to happen. And at the same time, we've got to remember where David's at. David's living safely with the Philistines. So Samuel makes two promises in this verse. He says, Saul's gonna Saul and his sons will be in the hand will be fall into the hands of the Philistines, and that Saul and his sons will be with Samuel. So first off, this means that the Saul the the promise Saul extracted from David is meaningless, because he had asked that David not cut off his house. And this is Samuel saying David doesn't have the ability to to promise that hmm. even though he's god's king and god's anointed one if god's decreeing something different then it's going to happen and it doesn't matter what david does so that promise that you you cried out for and begged for 
doesn't work. It's not worth anything. Don't, don't put any faith in it. Now, the second one is that Saul and his sons are going to be with Samuel. So this begs the question, where is Samuel? I mean, right now he's in the witch's house, obviously, but mm. where, where is he when he's not? So, well, I mean, in the realm of the dead. Yeah. Uh, presumably, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe not in the realm of the dead. Maybe, well, I mean. <laughs> right. We don't really have language for it that's great. Um, it, well, and that's the thing. The Bible never gives us a great definition of what happens, particularly in the Old Testament, mm. about what happens when you die. Um, so, you know, that, that's one of the questions we're asking. Where's Samuel? But we're also, why would the king and his sons end up in the same place that Samuel, God's prophet, is when he's dead? And how does all of this play? I mean, this is a... Well, and especially a king who the Lord has left. Yeah. I mean, presumably, I would assume that Samuel is not in Sheol or left in the realm of the dead or wherever else you want to... I don't understand. Like I said, the language there is a little tricky. It's tricky and... Again, not great definitions offered in the Bible. And so, because at this point, all of the dead do go to Sheol. Mm -hmm. And so in the Old Testament, there isn't heaven and hell like we think of it as New Testament Christians. Right. And now how proper that is, we will talk about that when we get into some New Testament books. But Yeah. And of course, you know, <laughs> Sheol gets often translated as hell in, in yes. so many places that it just convolutes things farther because... Then you have people trying to do theology based on uh, imported language, mm -hmm. and you wind up with this idea of like, wait, it says he'll raise me up from Sheol, but isn't Sheol hell? But no, Sheol's not hell. I mean, it. So it's like, well, what is it? Where where it is? Where's the answer? And that's why I don't have. A good answer. I assume you have some ideas I've got, or I, some notes. Yeah, I've got a little bit of information, and I want to begin with first of all. Sheol is not a concept that is unique to Israel. Okay. Um, we, we have this in Canaanite and Ugaritic uh, writings that they refer to the same place. One of the ways to think about it that I find helpful is in Greek writings, we, ha we talk about Hades. Mm -hmm. And Hades is, um, it's where all of the dead go. It's not good or bad. It's just all of the dead go there. Now, if we want to talk about Tar Tartarus, Tartarus, yeah, that's where the really bad folks go in Greek mythology, which is way below Sheol, I mean, Hades in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. But but they're kind of um, very similar concept. When you're dead, this is where you wind up. And so what we do know about Sheol from the Bible, it, it very little, but we get these little descriptors, and we know it's below the earth. That's in Isaiah seven eleven or mm -hmm. Ezekiel thirty one fourteen. Both of them talk about the location. It's the greatest possible distance from heaven. That's Job eleven eight and Amos nine two. It is a land. A Job that's Job ten twenty one and twenty two. It has gates. Job seventeen sixteen and Isaiah thirty eight ten. And then also we can go into um, Jesus with Peter, Caesarea Philippi, and the gates of hell. So we know, and at that point, mm -hmm. I need to look up what, what word is being used there. Sure. Um, but I didn't take time to do that. It's divided into compartments. Let's see what I can find. <laughs> okay. Proverbs 7, 27. Here the dead meet, and that's Ezekiel 32, just the whole chapter. Very interesting description. Isaiah 14 also uh, talks about the dead meeting, and, and it's without distinction of rank, nationality, age, uh, pious or wicked. It doesn't matter. This is just where everybody is. Uh, David resides there in peace, so we know that David is there. That's on First Kings, uh, from 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Warriors have weapons there. That's Ezekiel 22, verse 27. But they're merely shadows. Isaiah 15, 9. God is the ruler of Sheol, not Satan, not the devil. God is the ruler. Amos 9, 2. Hosea 8, 4. Deuteronomy 32, 22. God can rescue those he loves from Sheol. That's Psalm 16, 10. It is Hades. It is the, Hades. Okay. It, so according to Bible Hub. There you go. So that would be, uh, that would be Sheol. 
say sometimes it's personified as hungry, being devoured, uh, being the one who devours souls. That's Proverbs one twelve, Proverbs thirty fifteen through sixteen, Isaiah five fourteen, Hosea thirteen fourteen, Psalms six six. So, but like I said, these are just little descriptors. They just like, kind of popped in there. And if you go through and read all these verses, you're going to realize there's not like a complete theology of Sheol presented. It's sure. just this. There's a spot. Um, it, overall, it's only mentioned 66 times in scripture. And so when you just have 66 mentions of these little snippets that are kind of usually bound up in larger narratives or prophecies mm-hmm. about something completely, it's related, but it's not about that. It's just kind of a side note added in so you don't get a full picture. And Really, I mean, I went through so many sources looking at different ideas, and the only point of agreement anyone could come up with, and this was in a lot of Jewish sources, Old Testament scholars, is that this is the place the dead go, and they wait for the judgment during the Messianic Messianic age. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, not a lot of descriptors there. Is that where, that's where people the gen, general populace goes mm-hmm. so i but i find it really interesting because i mean that that kind of gets even more convoluted with jesus telling the thief on the cross like hey you'll be with me in paradise and that's the question because did the messianic age begin with jesus life on earth or are we waiting for the second coming are we waiting for that day of the lord and the great white throne judgment and all of that it seems like a lot of work. I mean, you might want to get started early, Adam. I, mean, I, I, I don't have an answer. I know that's been hotly debated for years. Yeah, and it, it is. It is hotly debated. And since that is, uh, I'm going to pun it because it's, <laughs> it's a New Testament question. So we're going to wait until we get to the New Testament to, to go into that. Um, Just kick the can on down there. Yeah, yeah, because right now at this point, the the writer Samuel and our story, our people in our story, they're not asking these New Testament questions. They're they're asking Old Testament what? questions. I know, right? So they I, didn't have a copy of it. Seriously, you would think. <laughs> I mean, and that's the that's the thing. So I wanted to stay. In con- <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just that is one of my pet peeves. Is like everyone assuming that all the. All the ancient Israelites had a copy of the New Testament. They were reading, oh, I can't wait for this to happen. Right. Like the way we do with Revelation. And get so wrong. Um, <laughs> don't get me started on that. Um, you know, helicopters are scorpions. But anyway, um, the, the thing is, when we read these stories, we have to be very careful not to bring what we learn from Jesus back into the story unnecessarily or incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not saying you can't do it because I'm getting ready to, um, but you need to be very careful when you do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I, I definitely understand. We've, we've addressed that, too, you know, the mm-hmm. typology and, and things like that, where you can see foreshadowing. But the, the ancient writers were not writing with that in mind. Exactly. God was was crafting the story inspiring to do something that has revelation value in it i it's amazing i and that is the really cool thing about the bible is when you do begin to study it in depth you see how it yes god totally included crazy human beings to do weird things and write these amazing documents but he's still very much a part of the process and you can see that partnership in the revelation and you can see the partnership in the way the the different pieces are pulled together and also how humans have they're still their voices are heard and so uh my favorite example of that for anyone who wants to kind of play with the idea is jeremiah and ezekiel two people writing about the same situation, same time period mm-hmm. from different perspectives, different perspectives. Yep. And so, and they're giving prophetic words and they're using imagery from their own lives and things they understood personally to illustrate the same great truth. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a fun study to look at it from that way. But, um, the only significant clue we really have about the structure of, of Sheol is in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Now, this is the parable of the rich man, Lazarus. Uh-huh. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the rich man has died. He's been sent. Um, 
into uh, Hades or Sheol. Uh, the word there, I did look that up, was was Hades. So that's the reason why when you said, oh, it, it is Hades in that. Yeah. I, when they translated it from the Greek, uh, from the Hebrew to the Greek, Hades was the word that was used. So it's for the Hebrew Sheol. And now Lazarus is being uh, presented as going to the bosom of Abraham. Now, this is not someplace that's specifically designated as the bosom of Abraham anywhere in the Old Testament, but we do have similar ideas. Um, this is Genesis 25, 8, that um, the person who died was gathered to his people who mm -hmm. died before. Uh, Genesis 15, 15, goes to, going to his fathers in peace or gathered to his fathers, that's Judges 2, 10. Abraham, you know, obviously is the the father of Judaism. He, he's the big guy in their history. And everybody sure. goes back to, I mean, we sang he's it. He's the patriarch. Yeah. And we, we sang it in church growing up. Father Abraham had many sons. I won't sing it. And I'm not going to turn around, sit down, all that good stuff. But so, <laughs> yeah. And, and this, this phrase I know has been, I, I, I'm wondering what else you have on it. If there's any kind of, uh, contemporaneous material of the second temple period because it it does kind of seem to me to come out of nowhere this <laughs> idea and i also wonder because it's it's so interesting because you know you always have the 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 preachers and the evangelists and the they're doing their diagrams of like, well, there's hell here, and then there's a chasm where you can see a cross, mm -hmm. but somehow it's also in utter darkness. <laughs> and, you know, there's like these 150 different things that they break down from this single verse. And then there's this location, which if you put it on a map, is called the bosom of Abraham. You know, and I'm just going, could it just be that maybe Abraham was welcoming him home and he was like, and that was, and they, you know, there was that exchange. And during this exchange, you know, the rich man interrupts, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm trying to pick it apart with the best I can being an English speaker. Well, and I actually, I didn't look at any Second Temple uh, sources. Maybe I should have, um, because you're right. It, it's not in the Old Testament. It just, it just springs out of nowhere. Uh, it it seems that um, it seems to <laughs> right right and you know and it wouldn't be uncommon for Jesus to to use a phrase that was either part of the culture or to coin a new way of saying thinking that that they would understand. I yeah. mean, it, it's very both are very likely. So I don't think we can rule out one or the other. Uh, just sitting here, but at the same time, there's the two places don't seem to be separated there, there doesn't seem to be that much of a distinction between them there's they're still connected in some form even if it is by some chasm or what have you they're not it's not heaven and hell because and, and see i kind of and i personally i it, it's a parable mm -hmm. so i try to that that's the other part i, mean, I really look at it as a non-literal yeah it, 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 whenever i i mean that's where i have to that's where i mean not where I have to, but where I helps preserve your sanity a yes, bit. <laughs> I, yeah, it's it, I can't I can't put it all together and all the charts and graphs that were put together and drawn out and it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Right. Well, in Abraham's bosom, what we do know, it's not heaven. Even if metaphorically here, it's it's not paradise. It's none of those things because. Sheol is as far away from heaven as possible. That that was one of the the verses that we we saw earlier. So it it can't. And and see, I think we're dealing. Okay, and this is where I'm gonna get a little, <laughs> little bit weirdly uh, philosophical here. I think we're I think we're dealing with like you know 14th dimension geography, maybe or something <laughs> of that nature. I mean, it's beyond our comprehension. Where. Things. Reality spirals in on itself, and <laughs> yeah, and I know that sounds ridiculous and sci-fi, but I mean it's sci-fi is based on something. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true, but I—that's kind of where I, at the end of the day, have to leave mm -hmm. it. Um, whenever I really get to pondering these things, are I, you saying it requires faith? Yeah, <laughs> I mean... yeah. So, and I know I'm probably jumping to my conclusion before you get to the end of your notes, but I'm there's sure it's really, going to be interesting. Oh, there's really not that much more to say because the Bible doesn't say much more. The Bible basically says God's in charge of this. Do what He said to do, 
and mm-hmm. who's going to take care of it? He can rescue those he loves from Sheol. So evidently, it's not a place you want to stay. And those he love, he can go there. Yeah. And so the the theological questions it leads for us is why is Samuel there, and why would Saul and his sons be in the same place that that Samuel is? And does Jonathan? deserve to go to the same place Saul does I well and I mean and, and if because are you talking about like where it says that she sees a God was it coming up from now I'm a man I've, coming up does it say she sees him coming up from Sheol well I don't know I know it said coming up from the ground coming up from the ground yeah. and I'm just kind of wondering if, if if that was supposed to be Sheol or something like that if she was just using the, the to say returning from being dead as like a some kind like of like the grave, or, yeah, like yeah. the grave, and that would be an interesting. I'm trying. What verse was that? That, uh, she that was saw? well. She says coming up out of the earth. Um, that was twelve. Okay. No, thirteen. Sorry. Nine, ten. I can count. They go. They still go in that order. They still go in that order. <laughs> they haven't changed math that much, right? Yeah, sending out of the earth, high Eretz. So she she's talking earth, but so the earth, earth is sometimes some Eretz specifically. It's not ground like Adama or you know. It's it's the earth, mm-hmm. which is sometimes metaphorically in the Old Testament used for the grave. So it, I don't know how much that helps us. <laughs> kind, of, kind of fuzzy language. I don't know. <laughs> well, and I think you know this is. This is the realm of the dead, and we as human beings living on the earth, we aren't—we don't need that information. Uh, can you imagine what we would do if we had that information? It, here we are. Okay, we're going to work out this formulaic system to be able to somehow use this to to better ourselves. Oh, wait, that's called ancestor worship, mm-hmm. and so we we aren't supposed to do that. And now we wind up with okay, God probably didn't tell us because he's keeping us safe. Right. And so this, this is one of the reasons why this passage is so troubling for people. It's not just that Saul's talking to a witch. It's the fact that Samuel actually announced his final destiny here and, and where he's going to, to end up. Yeah. And so there's this, this big question that most of the people just, we can't answer. And we, we can't give a definitive clue as to, to what's going on here. Now, there is one other possibility, is that what if Saul repents? And what if Saul, before any of this, changes his mind and says, hey, I, I need to get myself right before I do die so that I can be with Samuel. I can be, I mean, we're not told. Right. So there, there's another option. I mean, and Jonathan seems to understand what he should do as a good and a moral person and, and observing the Torah. He has great faith in God. Uh, he's, you know, he went and attacked the Philistines earlier in the story. And, you know, he, he made a great leap of faith in, in that moment. And he even understands the truth about his father. Yeah. So Jonathan and Saul aren't even in the same category. So there, there's some. A lot of things that, that come out of the story that really make people question what's going on here. And this is really what makes it even more uncomfortable than just the fact that he's visiting a medium or a witch. It, it, yeah. that's, that's, almost the, that's like the sensational fireworks show that almost draws your attention away from the real theological issue here. Mm-hmm. So it's like you get caught up. And I... I I've seen this a lot of times. We'll get caught up in a Bible story and we will miss the point because something else has you know, in the has caught our dis, caught our eye and caught our attention and we just can't mm-hmm. seem to focus on what the real lesson is. And you know, really what the, the question is that boils down to most succinctly, and I know we've gone kind of all around of Katie's barn and accomplished nothing, <laughs> is Saul capable of being saved? That that's the real question right there. And it's a hard one because we don't want, there's a part of us, okay, if we're operating from total compassion, right? we want everyone to be saved. Sure. But we've also seen how messed up this guy is. And there's a little bit of that, mm, he doesn't deserve it kind of thing. But if we read this, we are Saul. I, I don't think there's one person in the world who has not done what Saul's done. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of the anti-hero thing. 
Mm-hmm. It's like we that's why we like anti-heroes because we we think somewhere somehow if people can like that guy then maybe there's hope for me. <laughs> right. And, and you know, and if there's hope for Saul then there's there's hope for us, but then you, uh, God's his enemy. So to, you know, can he repair the bridge before the 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 day of yeah. the, so I mean, you know, you bribe the thief on the cross. Obviously, there's a chance right up until that moment that it can as happen. As far as we can tell. So, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, there's a hundred thousand different uh, mm-hmm. debates going on concerning the thief on the cross. Right. Is, yeah. We won't go there. Uh, that's a New Testament question. But yeah. <laughs> kick that can a little further. But the, the thing is... I don't think we necessarily need to have the answer definitively. I think sometimes we just need to think about the question. Mm-hmm. There is value to asking questions we don't always have the answer for, the questions we may never have the answer for. Uh, they they cause us to expand how we're thinking. And maybe, just maybe, it'll inspire a little bit of awe in us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Help us see the grandeur of the God we worship. Yes. And ultimately, isn't that the whole point of everything? I mean, I, I don't think we can... I don't think we're ever going to appreciate who God is with any kind of trace or hint of how we should if there's not that awe. Right. It's all got to begin in awe. And that's the reason why studying this book, I mean, there are times that I'll be... I'll be working on notes and I just have to put my notes down and go for a walk because I've read something or seen something that it clicked into place for the first time. And it's just, my brain will not, will not process any more mm-hmm. information. Oh yeah. And you know, it's, it, it's amazing to me that, that we have this thing called the Bible that we can study. So verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. So the question is, what makes you know, Saul afraid? Is he afraid because he's going to die? Is he afraid because he thinks he's damned? That, you know, but is Jonathan damned? Does he think that about his own son? Um, again, back to those questions. But is he worried that Samuel is not, sa- <laughs> is not saved? Right. I, mean, I don't know. I hate to use saved as that parlance but you know Mm -hmm. but just the you know like oh man even Samuel wasn't good enough to get into (laughs) the good place (laughs) right suddenly I've got this image of Samuel walking with Ted Danson and (laughs) 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 this is okay I don't think those two would get along I mean I think yeah anyway that we aren't going to go down that rabbit trail I'm stopping I was totally joking I know but throw that Threw it all off the rails. So, yeah, but he's not eaten. Um, the rabbis claim that this, is, this was Saul trying to purify himself and fasting before appearing before a prophet. Maybe uh, other times, that it, you know, we know that he is, uh, he fasts before battles. We can go back to the vow he made. No one's going to eat until we win this battle. So we know that that happened. He's not real smart as far as when it comes to like physical health. I don't no, think. he he seems to have problems. But then at the same time, he he could just be stressed out. I mean, this could be just some anxiety. I can't eat because I'm too worked up about the fact the Philistines are getting ready to attack and I don't have I mean, any that guidance. Would, that would probably be, that was what I, I just assumed. I assumed that he was just... Being human? It was just anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, and that's the thing. We are not told why he didn't eat. So this is the reason why, again, we have conjecture. So verse 21, and the woman came to Saul and she saw that he was terrified. So notice, you know, she had been there. Samuel starts speaking. She goes away. Now Samuel stopped speaking, she's returned. So that's a very interesting point because it, it doesn't seem like she is facilitating the conversation between Samuel and Saul at all. Right. Once, once Samuel's there, she's like no longer necessary. So she said uh, to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. And she's talking about herself. I have taken my life in my hand and I have listened to what you have said to me. So the woman has, you know, like I said, been silent since, since verse 14. And there, there's this kind of this, this sandwiching going on between, of 
I, I hate to use the words, uh, but good and bad, dark and light with our characters that to, to contrast the two, um, the two main people here, which is the woman and it is the prophet and the, uh, the, the theme between both of them that's shared, cause you got to have shared elements for there to be a contrast right. is listen here. You, you aren't listening. You didn't hear, or you need to listen and you do need to hear and you know, Samuel had said, because you did not obey. So if you look at what, how it's written in Hebrew, Samuel says, you did not shama. You didn't uh, shamata, sorry. Uh, but it's based on shma. Okay. Yeah. That's... And yeah. So you didn't, you didn't listen. You didn't do the first thing we as Israelites have been commanded to do. Right. And the thing that, Every morning when you get up and you, you should be saying, so this woman, she doubles down and she's like, I need you. To, I listen to you. Mm-hmm. Now you listen to me and I obeyed you. Now you obey me. So verse 22. So now, therefore, you also obeyed your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may be strengthened, that you can go on your way. So. I'm going to kind of condense down the rest, uh, verse 23 through 25. Uh, you know, at first, Saul resists. He, he just has no interest. But the servants and the, women are, and the woman argue with him and convince mm. him that he does need to eat. And she kills a fatted calf and bakes him some unleavened bread. So this is you know, a common meal for someone you're trying to honor. It's a feast fit for a king. And, and then they eat and leave. So It's a lot of food for four people. It really is. Yeah. But the the scene itself, I mean, it's so mundane and so familiar and so domestic that it gets lost in comparison to all these supernatural elements that we've had going on in the chapter prior to this. And the, that's the point. The contrast is the whole point. Uh, we've got the same role of opposite kingdoms where you have two intermediaries between the spirit realm and the physical realm. You mm-hmm. know, Samuel, this is what he does. He goes between the realm of God and God's kingdom to communicate messages to people here on earth. This woman goes to the realm of darkness to bring messages from the spirit realm to people on earth. So this is how they play off each other, get the same role. Both have the king's identity revealed to them spontan- you know, spontaneously when the king comes to the home. Right. You know, remember Saul was just looking for his donkeys. He, he was hoping someone <laughs> would help him find it. Samuel knows that God's going to appoint a king. He doesn't know who it is until um, Saul appears. Right. Both reveal the king's fate, that this is, this is what's going to happen to you. So, uh, Samuel, originally, you're going to be king. Now you're going to die. And this woman, she can't contradict that, but she's facilitated bringing the ultimate revelation of fate to Saul in this moment. And Saul is compelled to listen and do as instructed. He has no choice. When Samuel um, first finds Saul, you know, he had a meal prepared and he gave him that priest portion uh-huh. and that, that meal of honor. And here this woman is feeding him. And then... The biggest contrast, you've got grumpy, irritable Samuel here in this time when Saul is the most devastated he's ever been, and he shows absolutely no compassion towards Saul himself. I mean, he's really rough on Mm. a guy who's going to die and whose sons are going to die. The woman sees that he's terrified, and she, she feeds him, and she doesn't just say, here, have a sandwich. She's like, no, you're going to eat. You need to eat. Right. You're, you don't have any strength if you don't eat. And so the, when you read this and you, you go through this, she's actually the one you like. She's mm-hmm. actually the character that you, you have some empathy for because she has empathy for other people. Right. Samuel kind of comes across as a jerk. Well, and I, I also kind of, you know, we, we've kind of seen this... Uh this idea of, you know, trusting women <laughs> getting you in trouble. I mean, I'm not, that yeah. sounds terrible. No, but we've I... seen this idea of, uh, going on with like Yael and, uh, 
Delilah, uh, uh-huh. you know, just different characters. And again, I'm not trying to advocate that women are bad, but. Uh, <laughs> well, we covered out why, why this is not against women, but yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, she says, you know, hey, I took a risk doing this. Mm-hmm. So you better eat so that, you know, you can understand that I'm not going to try to double cross you after all this. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the part of what it seems like to me. That, like, if you die of starvation in my tent, <laughs> I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, well, and she would be. She would have been killed in a heartbeat if he was found there in her tent. Yeah. And, and that's part of, yes, that's part of her motivation. We've got to get him out of here mm-hmm. because it's not safe for him. And, you know, there is that aspect to it. And the other thing to to realize, too, is when the writer's presenting this like again he never refers to her as a witch or a necromancer he calls her haisha uh, the woman mm-hmm. i mean it's just there there's no there's nothing negative or the, there's no critique even of what she's doing presented in this passage right it, it's just this is what happened i mean it's not even a fairy tale it, it's not some kind of moral fable that we would tell our kids to to make them scared of this sort of thing I mean, the, there's nothing in this story to, to do that because for the writer and the participants, this isn't a scary event. Right. This is normal. And so the fact that you can move from talking to dead Samuel to sitting on someone's bed, because Saul gets up from the floor, he sits on her bed. Right. And he eats a meal. I mean, how much more comfortable, how much more normal of a response can you expect from someone? And and the only fear in this whole story, this is the crazy thing, the only fear in this whole story comes from Samuel and what he reveals. It's God's messenger that Mm -hmm. provokes fear, not, not the woman. So if you read this story in, you know, in isolation, you actually have the two roles reversed from what you would expect to see. You would, you would expect, you know, oh, this woman who's a witch and a necromancer should, should be scary and mm-hmm. mean and mm-hmm. cruel because she's from the other kingdom. And then there's, there's Samuel. He should be the kind and compassionate one. What's going on here? And whenever we don't study the whole story and we don't go back and see the background that, that Samuel had with Saul and how Saul's abused everyone under his care, mm-hmm. we don't understand what's going on. So the, the, the thing is, we can't read any passage in isolation, but we particularly cannot read this passage in isolation because you're going to come out with a wrong idea. Yeah. Yeah. Because yes, it is, it is effective that you can talk to the dead. And this woman was able to, to bring some kind of um, revelation for Saul. And, you know, the, the thing with Saul is during his entire reign, he couldn't follow simple instructions. He kept adding on to things he'd been told to do. Mm-hmm. You don't add to the word of the Lord. We know this, right. but and Saul would have known this. He he should have known this. Uh, he was trying. You know, he tried to kill David. He tried to kill his own son on at least two different occasions. And you know, he pimps out his own da- daughters. He kills the priest at Nob. Uh, he he should be afraid. The proper response for Saul was fear. This is not a oh feel sorry for him moment. Mm-hmm. We should be yes. This is what you need to understand. You need to understand that. Fear is the only right thing for you to feel in this moment. And sometimes when we're confronted by holy and truth and holiness and truth, all of these things that are part of God, not just love and kindness, because that's, that's part of who God is, but it's not the totality of who he is. Right. Judgment, wrath, vengeance, also in God. Uh, these are parts of him and how he expresses himself. And if you remove that part of God, who God is from your theology, you're going to wind up with an enabler. Right. You're going to wind up with somebody who really doesn't care about your health. They just care about you feeling good. And that's not healthy for you or anybody else. Certainly not healthy for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then that God has to become such a personalized God that the only person and only one who benefits from this God existing is you. 
Because if things are always working out for you, I can guarantee you there's 20 people at a stoplight where, you know, the one just turned green. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there's no line at McDonald's except for the people behind you. I, everything works out for you. And so you've got to realize God is a parent with many children. And so sometimes when you've got more than one kid, somebody has to wait Someone in line. Someone has to wait in line. <laughs> so, and... You know, he's been given so many second chances at this point. It, it's not even funny. This is, God has been slow to anger with him. Mm-hmm. He really has been. And all Saul did was m- demonstrate that God's goodness and mercy, his generosity. I mean, Saul was looking for donkeys on the side of a hill. And God said, I want you to be a king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, you needed a prophet to talk to you. I'm going to make you a prophet. I'm going to pour out everything you want, and you didn't even know to ask for on you. Mm-hmm. And, and Saul, it didn't matter. He he never reverenced God the way he should. Right. And so, turning to to this woman at this point in time, for Saul, it's almost inevitable because she offered him the only way to hear from God that he could have some appearance of control over. Because Saul was always about controlling God's response. He wants God to talk when God talks. He wants God to show up when he needs God to show up. There's not any patience. And, you know, there's not only this chance that this woman could get God to speak to him when God had been silent and trying to blackmail God into responding. He's the kid throwing a fit. Daddy's going to come out and talk to me if I scream louder. Right. But there's also this idea that if you're going through this, this way, this, this methodology of, of attempting to talk to the spiritual realm, maybe you can control the message. Maybe you can influence what you're being shown. And, and of course, Samuel, he, he's not going to tell Saul <laughs> right. what he wants to hear. But this is, you know, she, she turns around and she, she offers this, this, ki- uh, this kindness, but she demands obedience. I listened to you, now you're going to listen to me. I obeyed you, now you're going to obey, obey me. And, and notice he gives in to her immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there's a little bit of hesitation, but then he obeys. And the thing is, Saul ultimately always obeys the opposite kingdom. Mm-hmm. He always honors the opposite kingdom. This is the why it's so bad King Agag came home. He was honoring the king of the opposite kingdom. You, you don't do that. The Amalekites were horrible people. And to bring him into the place where God's king was supposed to be honored, God was supposed to be honored through the, uh, the, the honor of his king. Mm-hmm. And to have this other king there, it, it was such a slap in the face. And so... This, op- this woman from the opposite kingdom could get Saul to, to respond yep. and to obey. And he, gives, he gets from her what he always accepts from people, which is comfort and ease and honor. She gives him exactly what his ego wants. Mm-hmm. And he, he does respond to it. And so she can, she can offer him all of these things, and she can be very comforting and very soothing to his poor little nerves in this moment. But notice the one thing she can't do, she can't offer him any kind of reprieve from the decrees that Samuel has made. Right. And I think that's just, it's an amazing story when you realize that the Bible is not trying to hide the fact that the the people who serve the opposite kingdom can actually be kind. Mm -hmm. They can be very caring. But it's not going to be the truth. And the woman can't offer Sam, uh, Saul any kind of reprieve from the truth. Sure. So, but the other thing the story does is it points us back to the birth of Samuel. Now, Matthew Michael, he wrote a paper. It's called Narrative Conjuring or the Tale of Two Sisters, the Representations of Hannah and the Witch of Endor in First Samuel. Fascinating paper. We'll get a link to that. It's from the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament. And Michael explores a connection that I had not considered, and I thought it was so good. It's the story between Hannah and the Witch of Endor, because the story of the two women, they really bookend right. the, the First Samuel book and the story of Saul. So 
both women are intermediaries between the spiritual realm. Uh, Hannah's okay. a prophetess, mm-hmm. we, and we have this witch or medium. Hannah's the mother who gives birth to a son, and she brings Samuel into this earthly realm. It's the medium who pulls him up out of the grave to bring him into this earthly realm. And so e- each woman is at opposite ends of his existence in, in giving life and then to speak to him in death. So Hannah speaks and new life is created and a new reality is formed. I mean, we go from the, the corrupt worship at Shiloh and the lack of a king, and Hannah prophesies that there's going to be an anointed. Right. The medium can only give voice to the dead. She doesn't create anything new. She does not have that ability. Hannah brings Samuel up to Shiloh to be presented to the Lord. Mm-hmm. The medium brings Samuel up from Shiloh to be presented to Saul. And I thought that was an interesting coincidence, uh, Shiloh and Shiloh. I don't know if there's anything to it, but it catches your ear. Okay. <laughs> and so, Is that, wait, Shiloh, Shiloh, not Sheol? Sheol. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, yeah. Sheol. <laughs> I was like, wait a Shiloh, minute. Shiloh, but... she, Sheol. But they're clo- they've got enough yeah. similarities. They just, I don't know. So again, don't know if there's anything to it. But Hannah provides a robe to indicate Saul, uh, Samuel's future role and identity in the nation. Mm-hmm. The medium identifies Samuel by his robe. So we got that connection through the robe there. Hannah and her family worship. They bow down in Shiloh. It's the first mention of anyone bowing down in worship is with Hannah's story. Saul bows down to worship the medium. That's the last mention in the, in the book right there. Hmm. Uh, the first mention of Rama is 1 Samuel 1. The last mention of Rama is 1 Samuel 28. There's two times that flower are mentioned in the book of Samuel. One's with Hannah taking the flower for the sacrifice. Sure, sure. This, again, here with the woman cooking for Saul. Hannah refuses to eat until she knows God has heard and responds to her. The medium prevails upon Saul to eat after he first refuses. So he's not waiting for a response from God to, in response to his repentance and a cry for help. He gives up. He eats. Hannah anticipates a coming king. The medium anticipates the demise of a king. Mm. So Hannah's prayer and prophecy make the end, marks the end of the house of Eli. Because right after this, this is when Eli's sons die. This is when Eli himself, himself dies. Mm-hmm. The medium, uh, the events at her house, marks the end of Samuel's house. Because Samuel's, uh, not, sorry, Saul's, Saul's house. house yeah. yeah, Saul's going to die pretty quick after this. Hannah nourished and nurtured a child, which God would enact new realities that were revealed in Hannah's um, prophecy. The medium will nourish the childish king whose destiny is as dead as the man she raised up from Shiloh. So we have, again, this, this very different, um, we see how Hannah is all about life. The, the medium is all about death. Right. And Hannah is able to bring forth new life or participate in the act of bringing forth new life. Mm-hmm. And where the, the medium, she's stuck. She's never going to be able to, to give new life to anything. But by holding the two stories in tension, it tells us a lot about, about Saul. Because Samuel, I mean, when you look at his life, he is always his mother's son. He's the mm-hmm. product of her, her prayers, her hopes, her faith. He embodies her prophecy. Mm-hmm. He enacts the justice and the, God's victory over his enemies that she talks about. I mean, and, and I encourage you, if you listen to this, go back and read that prophecy that she gave at the beginning of the, of the book and see how Samuel really has lived it out. And so he enacts the vision that was birthed in her. Mm-hmm. And it's really amazing to me that he is the embodiment of her hopes. Yeah. And so Saul is shown to be the direct descendant of Laban, the diviner, the Nakash. Mm-hmm. And so he, he reveals his, his ancestry. He's not looking back to Jacob, the, the, his you know, great-great-grandfather, um, because he was um, a descendant of Rachel and Jacob. He, he took it one step. Instead of saying, this is where my family starts, this is my family in God, in the God who calls us into Canaan to provide us land, I'm going to look back to Laban, who never left the place where it, divining, and mm-hmm. you know, sorcery was still a part of their their identity, 
And all the, the doubt we might have about who Saul really is is kind of removed at Endor. He has returned home in a lot of ways because this is a place where he can be who he was created to be. This is the place where he can be accepted for who he is. He, he never had to change to be loved and cared for in, in Endor. Right. And Samuel confirms that um, his mother's words at this confrontation between the prophet and the king, because go back in verse, chapter uh, 2 of 1 Samuel, verse 9, he will guard the feet of the faithful ones, he will, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall the man prevail. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord, remember, uh, God is Saul's enemy now, mm-hmm. the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Hannah is shown to be the true prophetess, and all of her words have been proven true uh, by Samuel. And she even hints at the events in the medium's house. Verse 6 of chapter 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. Hmm. Hannah has created realities with her words. And so the medium can only, she can only converse with death. And so what we need to be taking from that comparison is Hannah, the one who recognized there's a problem, was not content to just be okay in this moment. She cries out and says there's injustice. It needs to be addressed. And she paves the way for the Messiah to to appear in the kingdom of Israel. Mm -hmm. The medium, she just goes with the status quo. She doesn't cry out against anything except for the preservation of her own life in the beginning. When she finds that safe... I'll feed the very man who could kill me. Yeah. And she she ushers in a time when the king's going to die. So th- there's this huge contrast. A very yeah, very interesting. I had never considered that, but that's so uh... So it's very cool. Yeah. So that's the reason why we spent three weeks. On, and I promise next next week we will be moving forward we will with get David. To a new chapter. Yeah. Uh, so, but this is um, this has been probably one of my my more favorite ones to study. There's a lot of a lot of detail in there that that you kind of overlook. And and again, like I mentioned last week, you know, a lot of times if you're spending this much time on such a short, short amount of text. It gets you can get bogged down and it, get, it can get real heady and real boring real mm-hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. So well, I hope we managed to avoid that. <laughs> I I feel like we did, but um, well, and we're gonna actually. What's what's funny is this story is gonna come up again, okay. and and what's crazy is it, it's gonna come up again and in ways that you we just didn't expect unless you took time to to dig into it this way, right? And so that's the reason why I'm always going. The Bible is so amazing. Because you never know where one thread's going to lead you. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I'm looking forward to see where we go from here. And uh, other than that, um, I think I don't have anything to add to that. So if if you do, who, anyone who's listening, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, RavenCreekSC.com gets you to our website where uh, you can find all the stuff that we do and are affiliated with. Uh, there's commentarians with Joe Zaragoza and. Sometimes Emily, sometimes me, sometimes other people. Most of the time, <laughs> other people. Um, and then there is um, Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. He's there every two weeks giving and, you some really interesting interviews, people who have changed their minds about big things, little things, silly things, and all that in between. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> you never know what you're going to be talking about. So. so, yeah, go check those out. Great shows. We enjoy both of them. And in the meantime, uh, I guess, like I said, if you want to contact us, hit us up. We'll be there or there or here or somewhere. So <laughs> have a good one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.